I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is a special bonus episode of Crime Writers On, an In the Dark update. On Friday, September 4th, Judge Joey Loper signed off on a motion from the Mississippi Attorney General's office to drop all charges against Curtis Flowers. He had been tried six times for the 1996 quadruple murders at Tardy Furniture in Winona, Mississippi. Each proceeding either ended in a mistrial or was overturned for prosecutorial misconduct. The charges were dismissed with prejudice, meaning Flowers cannot be charged a seventh time. While Flowers' legal team can be credited for getting the conviction overturned by demonstrating his rights had been violated by racist jury selection practices, even prevailing at the U.S. Supreme Court last year, the criminal case against him was fatally undercut by the investigative reporting of the In the Dark podcast. Madeline Barron and her team at APM Reports found numerous witnesses who either admitted to lying on the stand or saying their witness statements were inaccurate. They cast doubt on the quality of the evidence, the propriety of the investigation, and discovered a credible alternative suspect. The podcast famously shined a light on the conduct of District Attorney Doug Evans, who tried again and again to convict and execute Flowers through a combination of racist legal maneuvers and evidence ginned up by his office's investigators. Excerpts from the podcast played in court helped convince the judge the state's case was fatally flawed. In the hours after the news broke, I reached out to Madeline Barron to see if she would share her reaction to the end of the Flowers case and her team's journalistic contributions to all of these events and this news. Hi, this is Madeline. Hi, Madeline. Hi. So how are you today? I'm doing doing well. A little tired, but doing well. I can imagine that you may have learned of this news about the state dropping the charges against Curtis Flowers with prejudice, perhaps before the rest of us did. But I'm wondering how it felt in that moment for you to hear that news. I mean, I think that's an extraordinary moment. You know, even though at a certain point it seemed like things were leaning that direction, that it would be dropped— You never know until it happens. And certainly in a case that's gone to trial six times, you know, nothing in this case is unthinkable, you know, and so we don't know it's over until we actually see that document in our hands that the the judge, Judge Loper, has signed. Um, Really not until then would I feel confident in saying that that this is done. Did you feel, you know... It's difficult, I know, as a journalist when you're telling a story, but you've also played such a pivotal role in advancing a story. And and I know that you probably don't want to be like, look what I did. I can't believe I did this. But I mean, part of you has to be feeling like your team, you guys made a difference in this man's life. You didn't just report his story and talk about the injustices around it, but you made a difference. Yeah, I mean, it's so tricky when you're an investigative reporter because you just never know what's going to gain traction and what isn't. And so the best that you can do is just put this information out there and hope it finds an audience, hope that people care about it. And I don't take that for a second for a given because, you know, a lot of times in our reporting when we go into like in-depth stories, I'll go back and read what's been written about a topic in the past and you'll find you know, oftentimes, you know, amazing reporting that's been done in the past. And you're just like so aggravated, like, why has nothing been done about this? And you don't get to choose those moments. You know, it's an extraordinary moment, but, you know, it could have gone another way. 
Was there a moment in your team's work in the last few years where you all looked at each other and, and said, you know, this has gone from telling a story to the work we're doing could actually have an impact on this case, on this man's life? Definitely. I mean, I, I think that from the moment that Odell Hallman told us he lied, there was that feeling. For years, him telling me he killed some people, hell no, he ain't never told me that. That was a lie. I don't know nothing about this shit. It was all make-believe. Everything was all make-believe on my part. And with that, the DA Doug Evans' star witness had reversed himself on a contraband cell phone from inside Parchman Prison. All this shit was just a fantasy. All of it was just a fantasy, that's all. A bunch of fantasies, a bunch of lies. You know, but then again, we know a lot about the criminal justice system to know, as do you and your listeners, you know, this, nothing is a given. You know, you could have all the evidence in a case fall apart. In some cases, you know, we've, we're familiar with, not Curtis's, but there's DNA linking someone else to the crime, and yet someone's still in prison for it. And so our team is really not guided by an outcome, which might sound kind of crazy, but we're really not. You know, we're, when we're in the field, the thing that's motivating us is to get to the bottom of something, to figure out what's actually happening. And I think if we were motivated by like trying to get to a certain outcome, then our work would look a lot different. And I, I don't think it would really be that sustainable or wise even, you know, to go about it that way. But, um, you know, for me, I think the moment that this really hit for me was after the bail hearing last year. And not in the moment when Curtis was out, but later that night when um, it was all done and Natalie and I were done working, Natalie Jablonski, producer, and we had left the Flowers house and we just had this like little moment to reflect on what had just happened. That to me is the moment that stands out. So when you're talking about, you know, reporting toward an outcome, you're talking about the difference between activism and journalism, right? And and you guys are very squarely in the camp of of journalism on this story. I mean, we hear you talking to the defense in this latest episode and other episodes. We know that the defense used some of your work in court, uh, including some of your data journalism in front of the Supreme Court. But you guys are squarely in the box of journalists in the story, right? You're not actively participating in the defense, working with defense. Can you just like talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So that is absolutely true. You know, we are not on either side. And really, like when you think about what we were able to find out in this story, we were benefiting from the fact that we are not on either side. You know, when we were doing the day-to-day work in Winona, when we were knocking on doors and asking people to talk to us, people who had given locked-in statements where they swore an oath to tell the truth, and we could knock on the door and say, listen, like we are not with either side. We don't need the facts to line up a certain way. We're not going to be able to subpoena you if we think you're lying to us, you know. Nothing, you know, and also it can go in any way for us and we're okay with that. Um, And so I think that that's such a valuable feature of reporting. And, you know, it's easy at this point to say, oh, like all that sort of a foregone conclusion that all these people would come forward and say what they said, but it really is not the case. And I think the people who trusted us did that because they knew that no matter what they told us, if the facts lined up a certain way, you know, if that was the truth, we would report it. And I think that's a a tremendous Asset. And that's not to downplay, you know, the work of prosecutors or defense attorneys. It's just that journalists are in a different role. And sometimes I think in, in these cases, that role is actually really helpful strategically. You know, it makes people feel better. I mean, especially, you know, in the Flowers case, there are so many people who'd been 
felt really harassed, frankly, by both sides, getting, you know, people constantly trying to get them to talk about their testimony and feeling pressured. And so I think that the progress we were able to make with people came from not being on a side, Hmm. you know, and and same thing with reporting on Doug Evans. You know, when we did the jury analysis of his, which found this pattern of his office striking black people from the jury at really disproportionate rates compared to white people across all these trials, you know, we didn't need that outcome to go a certain way. We didn't know what the outcome would be, you know, but we do the data analysis and then we see the fact and we report it. Hmm. After three months of data entry and analysis and many months of Parker gathering all the raw materials, Will was finally ready to tell me what he'd found out about what Doug Evans and his office had been doing in jury selection in all those trials. So just the top level finding is from 1992 through 2017, over these 225 trials covering a large number of crimes, there exists a very large disparity between the way that prosecutors exercise strikes against black and white jurors. Do you think that the length of time you've spent on this story has also helped you with source building and the trust that you've received and and the the truths that these people have told you after, you know, you've been so dogged, knocking on doors, living in Mississippi? Like, I mean, you embedded yourself in this story in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're just so lucky to be able to live in Mississippi because I don't see how we would have ever done this story without putting in serious time in Winona and in the surrounding towns, because we really did, you know, we lived, we lived this story for so long and people saw us and they got to know us and they, you know, maybe got to know us first as like the people who are hanging out with the parents whose kids are cheerleaders at the Winona Tigers football game, or, you know, somebody who's being invited to church and just seeing us and getting comfortable with us that way and then agreeing to talk to us. And then other people, you know, it really just took a long time for them to feel comfortable. I mean, I think about Clemmy Fleming, who was really the last um, important witness who hadn't talked to us in any depth. I mean, she talked to us briefly when the podcast first came out. And it wasn't until, you know, after that, the original episodes came out that she felt comfortable really telling us that what had really happened and her story about how her testimony was not correct about seeing Curtis. Clemmy says the investigators wanted her to say that she'd seen Curtis on one specific day, July 16th, 1996, the day of the Tardy murders. The whole time I've been telling them, like, I don't remember the day. Like, I always did try to tell them, you know, I don't remember what day. I was kind of confused or what day. It was like, I don't know. But it sounds like you did say that to the investigators from the start, that you didn't know the day. I tried to tell him, but he wasn't listening. He wasn't hearing it. What, what was he hearing? What do you want to hear? And so I think some people just take longer. And, you know, like, this is something that I think a lot about, which is, as journalists, we sometimes ask people to do this really pathological thing. Like, we show up at their door and we're like, here's a business card. You should trust me. Tell me everything about your life. And you should do that because I'm a reporter and I work for a reputable news organization. It's like, that's, some people are going to do that, but I also totally respect the person who's like, uh, no way. <laughs> like, I have healthier boundaries than that, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not talking to strangers, you know, regardless of who you are. Like, I will talk to my friend about this and not to you. And so I think that, you know, sometimes, like, if we're, as reporters, we just are, like, belligerent and are like, well, how dare she not talk to me? And I'm just going to keep showing up until she talks. You know, we just sort of ignore the actual, like, healthy dynamics that are taking place. And sometimes you just need to give people time and just like you would, you know, 
asking anybody to open up to you and, and, you know, be reasonable, give people space, allow people to have the time to hear about actually positive experiences that other people have had who've talked to us. And that word can get around. And then the person maybe changes their mind. But they come to that understanding on their own. They don't come to that understanding because we're beating down their door all the time. You know, and for all those reasons, I don't see how we do this without living there. And I just recognize, you know, as a reporter who really only got into journalism to do this kind of in-depth work, I just feel really lucky that I was am able to do it because I know that it's a luxury. I mean, it shouldn't be a luxury. It's not a luxury in a democracy. At least it shouldn't be. But it is right now because there's just not, you know, so many journalists are doing so much with so little. Hmm. Now, it was the Attorney General of Mississippi who filed this motion to uh, drop the charges, which you know led to the case basically being over. Can you just tell me a little bit about Attorney General Fitch? This is a person that you know didn't really appear in a ton of your reporting, as I know that there was an election cycle that happened. Right? Um, can you just t- talk a little bit about her? Like, what's her story? Yeah, so she's the new Attorney General. Um, recently sworn in, and she's a Republican. And the the politics of Mississippi look a little different than other parts of the country. So um, it's not necessarily that important, not as important as it might be elsewhere to know her party affiliation, not to downplay it. But the previous attorney general is this guy, Jim Hood, who ran for governor. He's a Democrat, um, ran for governor unsuccessfully. And he was a former prosecutor, is a former prosecutor, and had defended Doug Evans um, and his work on this case. And so I don't know how this would have gone if he was still the attorney general, but Lynn Fitch won that election and she is now the attorney general. She doesn't have, she's not a back, doesn't have a background as a prosecutor or anything like that. And her, but she did appoint a woman to head her criminal division who's very well regarded. And so it did seem possible at that point that it would be, when it went that way, that it would be dismissed. But yeah, Lynn Fitch is not, um, I think probably the most important thing about her in this case is that she does not come from a prosecuting background. Hmm. So she doesn't have that instinct to like, you know, see it from their point of view that we hear so often like leads to prosecutors not being held accountable for their actions. Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, in in any place, you know, it's uh, state the size of Mississippi. It's very possible that a prosecutor would actually know the other prosecutor Hmm. and even be friends with the other prosecutor. And that could complicate things. And so. Um, That's just not what was happening in this case. You make it clear in the episode that you released right after the news broke that the charges were dropped with prejudice. So they can't, this case is over. They can't prosecute Curtis again for this crime. So he, at this point, doesn't have a record, right? Like for this crime, like he's not a convicted felon. I mean, it's, it's like it never happened, although 23 years have passed. Obviously, it did happen. But for him and his legal status right now, it's like it didn't happen, right? Correct. Right. Exactly. So do you have any sense of what he's thinking about doing next? Has he talked to you at all about that? Or is he, you know, still kind of reacting to this news? You know, we haven't had a chance to sit down with him and talk in depth um, since this happened. And so I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think that, you know, if you think about how his life has been, it's really bizarre to imagine getting out of jail in December, being under house arrest, then having a global pandemic hit, hmm. you know, where basically we're all under some version of house arrest. But, you know, it's a, it's a strange time to get out of prison. And, you know, any time is a strange time to get out of prison, I guess. But, um, you know, he's been he'd been locked up for 23 years or so. And so, you know, I'll be really interested to see, you know, how he goes forward. I mean, the thing that that I do think he has going in his favor is that he has such a strong family. And like so many people, whether they're guilty or innocent, 
who are in prison, you know, after a while, the family, I mean, sometimes not even after a while, the family stops showing up. I mean, even the family that really cares might stop showing up. Right. Because it's hard and it's far and it's expensive. And do they have a car and all these things? And so the fact that Curtis, you know, his parents visited him every visiting hour, talked to his family all the time on the phone, his extended family. I think that that helped him a lot in prison. And it's clear that's helping him a lot right now. Hmm. Now, we heard in the episode that uh, Doug Evans did not make himself available to speak to your team as of the time of our discussion here today. Who knows? That could change the next couple of days, although I'd be very surprised. Um, Has your team heard any reaction from anybody else in Winona, either on Curtis's side of the case or on, you know, the the people who believed he was guilty side of the case? We did talk to... um a relative of Curtis's yesterday that we didn't include in the podcast, but she was just expressing, you know, delight and, and you know, excitement at this outcome. She actually didn't know we called her, I mean, because we called her right after and, and actually were the ones who told her. And while Natalie was talking to her, her phone just started blowing up with all these calls. I haven't reached out yet to, haven't talked or, or reached anyone else in Winona, the people who think Curtis is guilty. I mean, we really felt like for that episode, that that was not the day for that. Right, Um, right. And so that was a choice that we made to really not focus on that in that episode. But I do do know, and of course, because of COVID, I mean, I haven't been back to Winona in in a little while now since December. But, you know, as of then, certainly a lot of people, white people in the town still believe that Curtis is guilty. And I, I would be surprised if that had had overwhelmingly changed. I think, you know, there are some people who have changed their minds and certainly people in the surrounding areas. But in that town, it's still, um, by all accounts, still quite divided racially, like as it always has been, as to whether Curtis is guilty. Now, one lingering question that I have is around, you know, in the episode that you guys just came out with after this news broke, you really do do like a great exhaustive list of every reporting step and every outcome you had in your reporting that sort of led to this moment. And of course, you know, one of the big ones was the identification of this alternate suspect, Willie James Hemphill. Can you just remind me quickly how he came into the frame for you guys? Uh, Was it documents? Mm -hmm. Was it a tip? Can you just remind me of how he sort of came into the picture again? So he came into the picture, it seems like so long ago, um, Natalie and I had moved to Mississippi. We're like living in this abandoned student housing in the middle of the summer in Oxford, and I have gotten all of the discovery from the case that's available. So I've like spread it out all over the floor, and I'm trying to put it in chronological order. And there's all these like duplicate documents and stuff. You know, it's not in any kind of order. And this one sheet of paper is in the middle of all this, which is a form that this guy I've never heard of before, Willie James Hemphill, signed waiving his rights, saying he was aware of his right to remain silent. He was waiving that. And it was a couple days after the murders. And this guy, I mean, I didn't know who he was. He was not anyone I was familiar with. And that document in this, you know, mounds and mounds of documents obviously stood out. So immediately we're like, well, there's got to be a ton more information about this guy. And like, where's a statement? What did he say when he was interviewed? Doesn't even say he was interviewed, but obviously he was interviewed because this is a form that you get, you know. And so that began this question of who is Willie James Hemphill. And then we um, ended up trying to find him memorably, I think. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Very memorably. (laughs) Yeah, we're um, radio reporters and we were... um, stopping by because we've been reporting on like something that I don't even know if you remember at all, which is the Curtis Flowers case. Yes, that was years ago, the uh, the fellow that did the film, uh, the furniture thing. Right, right. Yeah. And we came across like a sheet of paper in the investigative file for Curtis's case and that has your name on it. And I don't know. That was, but that wasn't me. Oh, okay. Is it this? Are you that Willie James? Hunter? No, that's my cousin. 
Willie James Hemphill went to turn off the radio. Then he came back over. What did what did what, hold on, see, what you told me off? What did you expect to find? Well, I expected to find the other Willie Hemphill. Oh, well, you expected to find well, no, yeah, I him. So. You were looking for the duplicate. I'm the original. It turns out there's a lot of Willie James Hemphills with that actual full name. Anyways, and so, yeah, then eventually we track him down and he says, oh, yeah, like right away, you know, yeah, I was a suspect in that. You know, they He told us that he'd been interrogated by law enforcement about the murders, that law enforcement told him that people had reported seeing him on the street outside of Tardy Furniture that morning. He told us that he wore the same kind of shoe that made the bloody shoe print at the crime scene, and that law enforcement went on a multi-state manhunt looking for him, and that he'd been held in jail for nearly two weeks. But there was one big thing Willie James Hemphill had told me that I hadn't been able to check out by the time the podcast came out. Where he was on the day of the murders. I was, you know, I walked in when I was arrested wearing Fila Grant Hill shoes, which are the type of shoe that made the bloody shoe prints in the store where the murders happened. Um, You know, they, they told me that there were people who saw me downtown at the time of the murders that morning. So he basically said all this stuff to us, which was nowhere in the record. And of course... You know, one of the most powerful pieces of evidence you can have as a defense attorney or as a person, you know, being charged with a crime is evidence that someone else did it. Right. And the courts really take that seriously, like, as we know, Brady material. So that was that was very significant when we went, Parker and I went to Indiana and we're talking to Willie James Hemphill and he was telling us all this stuff because we knew that that was not anything that Curtis and his legal team had heard before. And so that ended up playing a pretty significant role in what happened next because, you know, if you're trying to defend yourself, you need to know if there's anyone else who has evidence against them. And, and that, I think that Willie James Hemphill part stood out to Judge Loper because in the bail hearing in December, when Loper let Curtis out, he brought it up. And you, you heard the testimony in, our, uh, in the prior trials that uh, from, from John Johnson and I believe others that, that Mr. Flowers was the, sus- was the only suspect. And your honor? Well, I've heard that, but yet after the fact, now I'm hearing that uh, somebody else was picked up in hell for, for a number of days that was, in, in fact, uh, a suspect. So how does the state reconcile that? Your honor, all I can say is that his, he gave an alibi. I don't know what was done on it, but there's no other evidence to point that he had anything to do with it other than maybe he had a pair of shoes and maybe someone saw him around the store that day, which... Well, that's about the same type of evidence the state has against Mr. Flowers, isn't it? It seems like there's just as much evidence against that guy that there is against Curtis. Right, right. I mean, that was certainly memorable. Um, So the state is not indicating that they are pursuing the truth in this Tardy Murders case right now. I mean, have you had any hint at all that they're investigating the Willie James Hemphill lead in any way? No, no. I mean... Yeah, as far as we can tell, there are no plans to reopen the investigation. And as far as we can tell, there is no active investigation. I mean, obviously, if we were to learn of one, we would we would tell people, but I'm not aware of one. And, you know, this sometimes happens. Actually, I think it probably happens a lot in these types of cases where somebody has been charged and convicted and then they're later exonerated. And then the truth of what happened, you know, who killed these four people at Tardy Furniture in the summer of 1996 becomes a kind of unfortunate footnote to the case when really that was the center and that is a whole reason for the case in the beginning. It wouldn't surprise me if it has been the case for many years now that the families, several family members of the victims, believe still that it was Curtis, even after the Supreme Court reversed the conviction. And 
that's understandable if they believe that for that long. And um, it's obviously a complicated part of the story. But so I think there are people who still think, well, that right person was Curtis and Curtis just wasn't convicted. So there's not really I don't feel like there's a whole lot of energy to look in another direction. More of my conversation with Madeline Barron in just a moment. I'm going to ask you something that I'm only asking because I work on a team of journalists and I know that you are, you know, the face and voice of this story in so many ways. But I know that so many people did the reporting with you, helped you work on it. Can you just like just talk about your team a little bit? Uh, Who's on the team? Yes. What roles they played and just give them a little bit of the shout out. I know you probably want to give them. Oh, my God. Yes. My favorite question. Yes. I mean, oh, my gosh. So our team, I mean, as, as I hope you people get a sense of in the podcast because it's so important to us. I mean, this is really a team effort. I've never worked on a team this solid before, and I feel like I've had a privilege of working on a lot of really great teams. But so um, Samara Freemark is the co-creator of In the Dark and the managing producer. Uh-huh. Hi. I'm Madeline. This is Samara. Nice to meet you. She and I are the lead writers on all the episodes that you hear, and she's responsible for the sound of the show and all the production. And yeah, I mean, she and I, you know... We're really like working so closely together every single day. Then there is um, Natalie Jablonski, who's a producer for In the Dark, who I worked with the most closely in the field reporting season two. So Natalie and I, you know, I mean, all of our team moved there and lived there for periods of time. Natalie really put in a ton of time recording, you know, almost everything that you're hearing from from Winona, um, she played a role in. And so she was the one I would go and knock on doors with. And, you know, the role of a producer is, you know, both reporter and re- producer. And, you know, I mean, these were just also, I mean, I feel like she she recorded so much, too, which might sound like a small thing. But when you're out in the field every day recording everything like we did, you know, we recorded ourselves debriefing after interviews in the car driving. Alaska. Alaska. His sister lives two blocks from him. <laughs> Sisters not live in Alaska. It's just a lot of work. And then on top of that, to be asking great questions and interviews and helping guide the reporting in that way, I think having to do both of those things is a challenge. And she excelled at it. And then Parker Yesko, who you hear, not just our scanner in chief um, of all the documents, but just a really sharp reporter and really helped out, especially in the last few years with um, a lot of the reporting when we went back to Winona. But really her relentlessness and, and her just really good critical analysis has been so important. I mean, you didn't answer my question before. And I'm not going to answer it. Did you commit the murders at Tardy Hell Creek? No. Were you on Front Street that day? No. Where were you? I was in your pussy. Record that. Say that. Tell that. He's got that on tape. Cool. Quit Tell talking to me. I do not want to talk to you. She's a true reporter in, in every sense of the word. I mean, she's dogged. She's reasonable, she's smart, and she's just really great to work with. And then Raymond Tungakar, who's our associate producer, who has like such a variety of skills. I mean, he's such a, he's so great at um, making decisions in a mix. 
And, you know, a lot of the um, like the montages that you'll hear, he plays a, a lead role in. And then he also, you know, specifically in season two, he was the person we put in charge of ballistics. We basically said, Raymond, like you've got to like your job is the gun and, <laughs> and everything that's fired from it. And my God, like we needed that because every uh, yeah, we none of us were gun experts. And he did such a great job. And then also finding people. I mean, a lot of the job of a producer in a, in a situation like that is to find experts, find the people who can really talk to you about this evidence. And so some of the most memorable things that happened in, revolving around the science of this case. I mean, Raymond is, is 100% the person to thank for that. And then we have our editor, Catherine Winter, who is just like tireless. And we're constantly, you know, needing to track something at like one in the morning. And <laughs> somehow and like she has like a, a great idea for how to restructure a sentence, like long past when our like brains have stopped working. And is just really good at, you know, the role of an editor um, for people who are journalists, of course, they know it. And, even, and if you're not, I'm sure you can get a great sense of it, too. But there really is this like diplomatic thing where, you know, the editor sometimes knows that she's right, but the diplomacy comes in convincing you or letting you realize it. Right. And she has like the right touch. And, and, you know, she knows when we can have a disagreement and maybe she lets us win one, but also we don't really view it that way. I mean, the story needs to win out. And so she's just really great to work with for that reason. And then our web team, too. I mean, Andy Cruz and Dave Mann who, you know, for us, it's so important. I mean, with this news, for example, that broke yesterday, it's like so important to us to have a story out that provides all the context. And so they're great with making sure that we're showing all of our work online as well. And then, you know, although Will Kraft, our data reporter, you know, wasn't part of the reporting yesterday, he was such a big part of the reporting for season two. So for basically the last three months, I've just been going through court documents with the help of an amazing number of people from the team, reading through these court records. Um, analyzing Doug Evans' um, jury strikes and doing it with an enthusiasm. I mean, I think of, of Will's job as in some ways, you know, he doesn't get to experience, you know, all of like the fun of meeting people. And I mean, he did a little bit in the field, but mostly we have him in front of like spreadsheets, you know, <laughs> and that's his natural environment and he's happy with it. But I mean... I'm just glad that he's just so joyous about it, too. And I think that comes across when we talk to him in the episodes that he's so excited to share this this data. And that data ended up being so important, I mean, especially to the Supreme Court and their review of the case, the the data that showed the disproportionate striking of black people from the juries. And let me think. That's so many people. But like you can get the sense of, you know, and I haven't actually probably, I mean, I haven't named people who've worked on the show for like shorter periods of time helping us out here and there. But it really is. I mean, it's all of us working together and then, you know, constantly discussing, like, you know, what are we missing? What are the reporting threads we haven't gone down? What if we ask this question differently? And so we're also benefiting a lot from each other having all these different perspectives, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I never feel like I need to, like, motivate our team to work, you know, ever. Right. I only worry about the opposite. You know, like, are we working too much? It continues to be great to work with with all of them. And you're all, I mean, just personally speaking, so nice and like lovely and fun. I don't know. To me, it seems like a, a dream team. You know, it makes me wonder. I, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but you have more reporting on this story to do. You're going to be talking to Curtis. I'm sure you're going to be doing some follow up. But are you working on something else? Are we? Can we expect another big project from the In the Dark team? You can expect that, Rebecca. <laughs> Thankfully, yes. <laughs> no, we're done. We're done. Uh, we're just see you, see you later slash never. No, we are. Um, yeah, we're going to be we're working on season three of In the Dark and totally different story. 
and I can't say anything more about it than that. But every time we're looking at stories, we have sort of the same principles of what we're looking for. So we're looking for a story that's compelling on an individual level and important stakes on that small stakes of the people in that story, but also really important in a larger way. And so I, I, I think that's the case for season three, for sure. Madeline, I have to ask you, I know you've been a reporter for quite a while, and I'm sure you've got a lot of years of reporting left in you. Do you think you'll ever have another story like the Curtis Flower story again in your career? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, like, exactly like this? No. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I mean, but yeah, I mean, you never know. I mean, the, the fun one of the fun things about being a reporter is that you just... You get to spend a really long time in something and then you get to go off and do the next thing and the next thing ends up somehow being stranger and even, you know, more unexpected than the thing before. So I have no idea. Well, Madeline, you know, you're one of my heroes. You're also a friend and I I just adore talking to you, but I can't tell you on behalf of my listeners, I know they all just are in complete awe of your and your team's work. And it's such a pleasure to have your voice on our show. So thank you so much for talking with me about this incredible news. Yeah, thank you for having me. And also just, you know, you know, we do our work as a reporter, reporters on this story, but I do think it makes a difference to have people care about Curtis's case. And it means a lot to us, you know, to have, you know, you and your team spend time talking about this story and talking about the prosecutor and the issues of accountability. And so I think that, you know, for people who are listening, like it's no small thing to listen and to tell people about it and to care about it. It's no small thing at all. Our huge thanks to Madeline Barron for talking to me for this bonus episode. And thanks for making what will be remembered as perhaps the most significant true crime podcast in history. That's it for this special episode of Crime Writers On. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you later. Thank you so, so much for doing it. I can't tell you. I'm sure you're getting inundated with requests, and I really appreciate it. No, you would be the first people I would want to talk to anyway. Oh. So. Oh. Oh, I, got, but, I taped that. The New that. York Times. FYI, I taped that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I taped her saying that. <laughs> New promo. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Madeline. Partners in Crime, crime Media. media.